0: This morning, we will continue reading in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Our text for this morning is verses 15 through 18, which actually fits in beautifully with the theme also of professional faith. So we will read the verses 1 through 18, and our text will be the verses 15 through 18. Galatians 3, starting at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now, Now begins our text. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we will witness eight of our youth professing their faith. It's a big day for them. They will stand here facing you and make a vow before God and before his people. About 18 years ago they were baptized. God's covenant promises were proclaimed over their lives as they grew up. They began to understand those promises. They began to respond to them in faith. Today the day has come for them to make that commitment public. And they want to do it in front of you all, so it is good and fitting for us to reflect on these things together with them. It is a common misconception that those who profess their faith become members of the church afterwards. But this is not actually true. They already were members. In fact, they were members of this church even before they were baptized. About 18 years ago, their parents were asked this question, Do you confess that our children, though conceived and born in sin and therefore subject to all sorts of misery, even to condemnation, are sanctified in Christ and thus, as members of his church, ought to be baptized? So they already were members of the church. The baptism simply confirmed God's promises to them. But of course, a promise will do you no good if you do not respond to it in faith. And that's true for your whole life. You don't just respond once in front of the church. This response involves all of your life. These, these youth were already responding before today, and they will have to continue doing so for every day of their lives hereafter. And in fact, that obligation lies upon all of us. That's why our text calls us to respond in faith to the promises God made to you in Christ. That's what we are to do, to respond in faith to the promises God made to us in Christ. And we'll pay attention to three points He made them to you, He guaranteed them in Christ, and He calls you to respond. Now sometimes professional faith is seen as a mere rite of passage. You take the relevant courses and then you graduate usually around the age of 17 or 18. And some people look at professional faith in exactly the same way. They say, well, I'm 18 now. I should probably profess my faith. There are also people who doubt sometimes. And they ask themselves, did God really make these promises to me? Or was it just that my parents happened to have certain religious beliefs and I happened to be drawn into that before I had time to think things over myself? Maybe you lack certainty in your faith. How can you be sure that you have a personal call from God on your life? When people tend to forget, it's the factor of God's providence. You remember Lord's Day 10, don't you? What do you understand by the providence of God? We will not make you recite it, but it goes something like this. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them, that rain and, rain and leaf, rain and drought, now I can't recite it anymore, leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, Riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So God's providence included all of these things. It included the time and the place in which you were born. It included who would be your parents. It included your exact genetic makeup. It included your character and your disposition. All of these things are included in the providence of God. And it included everything that brought you to the point where you are ready to profess your faith today. So let us not think that this day is merely a man-made ritual. This day, too, is part of God's work in your life. God made these promises to you, and you need to respond to them in faith. Of course, when our text refers to God's promises, it does not begin with us. It begins with Abraham. God made the promises to Abraham and to his offspring. In Genesis 17, verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, Abram was 99 years old when God made that promise to him. Then God commanded that he be circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant promises, but the promises came first. Circumcision came as a sign and seal to Abraham to guarantee these promises to him personally. Remember, Abraham was only ninety-nine when he was Abraham was ninety-nine when he was circumcised, but Isaac was only eight, eight days old, and yet the promises were made to both. So the truth of the promises does not depend on the age of the person receiving them, and that is the case among us as well. That is why baptism and Circumcision proclaimed the same message. In both cases, God promises that he will be our God. In both cases, he promises to cleanse us from our sins. In both cases, he calls us to have faith in him. In both circumcision and baptism, the promise comes first. And your parents believed, so they had you baptized. You were included in this sphere of God's covenant promises that does not mean that you were saved by their faith, but it does mean that you are an heir to God's covenant promises. As the apostle Peter said at Pentecost, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. But what was the promise that God made to Abraham? Abraham. As we've seen before, all of God's promises go back to the big promise that he makes in Genesis 12. Everything that comes afterwards is is an expansion or an elaboration of this promise. But the basic promise is in Genesis 12, and we, we read that not that long ago. He says, There, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who blesses you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what are the two components of this promise? It is land and descendants. And God's blessing to all nations through these. So this focus on land and descendants comes back in many places in the chapters that follow. Listen to this, Genesis 12, verse 7. God says, to your offspring, I will give this land. You see, offspring and land. Genesis 13, verse 15. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Genesis 15, verse 5. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Genesis 17, verse 8. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So if you were to ask Abraham's descendants, what is the blessing? They would say, land and descendants. But that, that poses, us, poses a problem for us now, because how do you make that connection then from this Old Testament promise? To Abraham, for land and descendants, to these young people sitting here today, and to us. How, how do we make that connection? How are these promises of land and descendants relevant to us today? Well, what you need to remember is that the promised land in the Old Testament was important only because it was the place where God could meet with his people, This was where Abraham built altars to God. This was where the tabernacle was set up in Shiloh. This was where the temple was built later on. This was where Jerusalem was, the city of the great king. This was the only place in the whole world at that time where you could meet with God and worship. You could actually literally come into his presence. You could come into the temple. You could make an offering. You could worship God. You could be in his presence This was ground zero of God's holiness. There was no other place in the world where you could do that except for there. There was no other place where God had revealed himself as clearly as he had in the land of Israel in the temple. In fact, one of the people who realized this most clearly was actually a heathen initially. Naaman. Naaman the commander of the king of Syria. You can read that story in 2 Kings 5. A heathen commander, a rough man who served a heathen king. But he had this problem, leprosy. Nobody could cure him. So he ends up visiting the prophet Elisha in Israel who tells him to wash himself in the Jordan. And Elisha promises him, see the promise, he promises him, if you do this, you will be clean, After some encouragement from his servants, Naaman responds in faith. It's it's a grudging faith, but, but he does do it. He responds in faith to these promises, and he dips himself in the Jordan seven times, and he comes out the seventh time, and he's cured. Maybe you've never seen anyone who has leprosy. Maybe you should go home and look it up on Wikipedia, and then you'll realize how big of a miracle this was. He was cured. And he goes back to Elisha and he says, you can just hear him, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel, in Israel. See, he gets it. He understands. He understands that Israel is unique, but he has this problem now. He needs to go back to the commander he needs to go back to syria he needs to go away from the promised land but he is so certain of god's promises that he actually asks to take back two mule loads of earth from the promised land because he is so sure he that's how surely he believes that god is truly present in israel and this is an act of faith for him he he does this out of faith So the promise that God made to Abraham is not just the promise of land. It is not just the promise of descendants. It is the promise of God himself. It is the promise of a place where you can enjoy God forever. It is the promise that God will have a people. It is the promise that God will dwell with these people. That's the promise. And Paul writes about that in our text in Galatians 3 verse 15. He writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And he's thinking here of this covenant that God made with Abraham. He's saying to him, look, there are covenants, human covenants even, that are irrevocable. In our situation, for example, we have what's called the Soil and Land Conservation Act in Western Australia to protect native vegetation. And it provides for the option of making what is called a conservation covenant. There's two arrangements that you can make. One of them is called a conservation covenant. And the conservation covenant is irrevocable. Once it is made, nobody can change it. Not even the person who made it. The website says, quote, The term of these covenants is usually specified for perpetuity or a period of time. Once finalized, the commissioner does not have statutory authority to vary or discharge these covenants, end quote. In other words, it is possible for a covenant to be made and then even the person who was part of that covenant has no power to change or to revoke it anymore. That's the sort of thing that Paul is writing about here. This is the kind of covenant that God made with Abraham, a covenant that is irrevocable, a covenant that cannot be changed. And as we saw in previous verses and as we've seen for many weeks now going through Galatians, when you are in that covenant, you, if you belong to Christ, you are in that covenant. You are included in that covenant. And he says that in verse 9, you can see this for yourself. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 14, in Christ Jesus The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So you need to respond in faith to the promises God made to you in Christ. He did not just make these promises to Abraham. He made them to you. He guarantees them in Christ. That's our second point. So the question is, how can you be sure that God's promise does not depend on your obedience? That would have been the way Paul's opponents looked at these things. Paul had these opponents that were teaching the Galatians. You needed to become Jewish before you become Christian. And the way to do that is by submitting yourself to the law, God's law. And people still believe that today. There are Christians today maybe even in this very church, who believe that you get into a relationship with God by grace, but then you stay in by works. Paul's answer to that is that the promise was not just made to Abraham. It was made to Abraham and his seed, singular. Now, the ESV tries to help us along by translating seed as offspring. And that is what it means in this context. The ESV is a good translation. And it is um, generally very literal. And here it is, it is trying to help us by, by giving us the actual meaning of this word in this context, which is offspring. But in this case, it would have been better for them to translate it simply as seed. And the reason for that is because just as in English, the word can be used with a singular or a plural meaning. A, it's it's what you call a collective noun. And Paul here is using the singular meaning. What he's saying is that God made this promise not just to Abraham's seed in the sense of his descendants, but he made it to one descendant in particular. And and Paul spoke Greek quite well. He knew that the word seed can be used with a plural meaning as well. He uses the exact same word in Romans 4, verse 16, with a plural meaning. It obviously has a plural meaning there, even though the word itself is singular. So by saying what he says here in Galatians, Paul is making a theological point. The promise was made to Abraham's seed, his offspring, and, and Paul is, is, is taking that and he's saying, look, if you think about the different ways that you can understand the word seed, it was actually made specifically to one seed, to one offspring in particular, and that was the Christ. Christ. Now, exegetically, if somebody were to offer up this kind of reasoning at a Bible study, and if it was original, then then maybe you might wonder, are you sure that you got that right? Is, Is this the proper way of reading this Old Testament text? But the fact is that the double meaning was in this text from the beginning. If you think about it, when God made this promise first to Abraham... There were many other words he could have used. There are many other words for offspring or seed in, um, in Hebrew. You know, he could have said children. He could have said, boys and girls, I will make the promises to your boys and girls. I will make the promises to your sons and daughters. I will make the promises to your children. He doesn't say that. He says, I am making my promise to you and to your seed. So this is deliberate. There's a deliberate double meaning here. He specifically chose to use a word that has a potential double meaning, and so Paul rightfully, under inspiration, takes that double meaning and he applies it to Christ. Scripture does this in more places. Once you learn to read Scripture in its totality as a book, then you start to see that the whole thing is about Christ. There's a way in which Christ is not only the ultimate Israelite, but he actually embodies the nation itself. One obvious example comes from Hosea 11, verse 1. Here the Lord is speaking to his people through the prophet and he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Now the call out of Egypt obviously is a reference to the Exodus. But the Israelites were unfaithful to the Lord, weren't they? At home we are reading our way through the book of Judges and so very early on you can see that things went badly for them. They were unfaithful, that is the consistent theme through scripture that the people were unfaithful to the Lord, and Hosea complains about that. He says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So Israel was God's people. Israel had received the law, but they were never consistent in keeping it. So the Lord eventually removed them from the land. And remember, the land was the only place where you could meet God, and the Lord removes them from there. So what is intriguing here is that later on, Matthew quotes from this very text and he applies it to Jesus again. Long after the law was given, long after the exile had taken place, long after the return, long after people wondered if God would still remember any of his promises, Matthew takes this text, he applies it to Jesus, and he says this was actually the point, ultimately. Jesus was taken to Egypt by his parents in order to avoid the massacre that the evil king Herod carried out on the children of Bethlehem. Joseph was warned by an angel, this is going to happen. You need to leave. Joseph goes to Egypt with Jesus and with Mary. And that says in Matthew 2 verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So Jesus, and this is the point, Jesus was the ultimate seed of Abraham. Paul is not the only person saying this. The ultimate descendant to whom all of God's promises were made. God made these promises to Jesus, the man. He would be the one through whom God would bring the original blessing into the world. Because you remember from Genesis 12, the Lord says, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Jesus was the offspring through whom God would bring that blessing into the world. Because he's not going to be able to do it through the Israelites themselves, right? They've, they've made a mess out of everything. They've proven that they can't do it. But that was, uh, Jesus was going to be born as one of God's people. And through him, all of these blessings would be brought into the world. The blessing was land and descendants. And as we saw earlier, that really just means the presence of God and the fellowship of his people. So think about this. Jesus is the bridge. Between you and these promises. All who are in Christ receive these very same promises. If you are in Christ, you have these promises. They are yours. And what does it mean to be in Christ on its most simple level? It simply it means to, to belong to Him. To have faith in Him. In Ephesians 1 verse 11, Paul writes, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Jesus is the heir. Through faith in Him you share in all of God's promises. So imagine how great he must be. All the promises were made to him. All the promises are fulfilled in him. All the promises are realized in him. Jesus is the ultimate recipient of all of God's promises. Think about how great he must be. The promise is ultimately life in the presence of God together with his people forever and ever. That's what the promise is. And if you have faith, that promise is guaranteed to you with the blood of Christ. That promise is the only way you're going to escape the judgment of God. Remember that by nature, all of us are under the curse. We don't just need to be purified from our sins. We do. To be purified from our sins is important, but, but we need to be purified from our sins in order to escape the judgment of God. We need to be saved from the judgment of God. Look again at verses 13 and 14 of our reading. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Faith is the only way to be included in Christ. Your works have nothing to do with it. The Jews didn't see it that way. To them the point, the, the, the focal point was Mount Sinai. And and everything that Abraham did was just an introduction to get to Mount Sinai. And Abraham, they said, Well, Abraham was an example of a good Jew, somebody who who kept the law even before it was given, because he was so holy. But the point of the covenant was law keeping. But Paul says Sinai was an interruption. Sinai wasn't the the focal point of God's redemptive historical words. Sinai was an interruption. Sinai was given to keep the people separate from the nations around them as God's holy people until the Messiah would be brought into the world. The law was necessary to keep God's people separate from the nations. And of course for all of the other reasons that Paul writes about in 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 Romans as well, to teach people their sin and so on. But in terms of, of the timeline, the law was meant to isolate people from the nations around them until the Messiah could come. But the law itself was never the way to having life with God. The law cannot give you life. It cannot make you righteous. It cannot change your heart. In verse 21, Paul will argue that if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And his point is, the law cannot do this. The promises can only be given to those who are of faith. So he's not saying, first you believe, and then you get the promises. He's not saying that. He's saying that the promises are fulfilled in the lives of those who believe instead of those who keep the law. As he says later in Romans 4 verse 14, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null. The promise is void. If you can be saved by law-keeping, why would you have faith? So you must respond in faith to the promises that, that God made to you in Christ. There is a very practical application that we can deduce from this command. We live in a culture that idolizes youth. It encourages our youth to act wild while they're young and then settle down later. Perhaps there are people who think that way about professional faith as well. Perhaps there are people who who think that when you're in your teens, you can carry on and and get all of the foolishness out of your system, but towards the end you should probably settle down and profess your faith. But if, if you think about it, this is just putting yourself under the law all over again. On the one hand, you're, you're acknowledging that, that foolish behavior to carry on like that is bad. And, and that's a judgment that only the law can make. On the other hand, you're suggesting that the solution to that is to settle down. And the sign of that, that you've settled down, is to profess your faith. But if, if we reason like that, are we not putting ourselves under the law? There's no salvation in that. Instead, our first step should be to confess our inability. Before you confess your faith, you should confess your sin. You should acknowledge your inability to change and cleanse yourself. You should profess your faith in the Christ who cleanses sinners and who guarantees those promises. And then you can profess your faith. Then you must profess your faith because he calls you to respond. That's our last point. These youth are professing their faith today. That is not to say that you did not have faith earlier. Of course you did. But now you're taking public ownership of that. Do you remember the quote from John Calvin that we had at the very beginning of our class back in uh, probably the very first pre-confession class? Do you remember that quote? Calvin said, you should have made profession of your faith at the hour of your baptism Then already the Lord gave you this obligation. Only because of your weakness has this confession been postponed, end quote. Remember that? It's true. God has been waiting for a long time. But God is patient. Yes, you still have a lot of growing to do. I still have a lot of growing to do. We still have a lot of growing to do. But God is patient. He was patient in the past. He's patient now and you see that reflected, very, this is very subtle. You see this reflected in verse 15 in the word brothers. To give a human example, brothers, and then he goes on to say what he says. But look at that word brothers. See, he's, he has been um, um, putting it to them very bluntly. He's been very strong in expressing his opinions. But now he calls them brothers. He's bridging the distance. He's saying, Look, you know, if you are are in Christ, we belong together. I have criticism for you, but we belong together, he's saying. We belong together just like we do. We belong together just like Paul belonged with these people, just like we belong with him. Because God has one family. Who belongs to God's family? Who belongs to God's family? We do. You do. That's why you're going to profess your faith together and you're going to do it before this church. That's not a private initiative. Years ago in the Netherlands, there was a story about a group of reformed youth. They requested to profess their faith in the backyard of a mate of theirs. Consistory actually granted that request. They even sent two elders down to lead this event. Why did these youth not want to profess their faith in front of the church? Well, because they didn't feel connected to the church community. That's why they preferred to, to profess it together instead. That was so wrong. Consistory should have never let them do it that way. When you profess your faith, you acknowledge that you are part of one family. The family of believers, you acknowledge there is one body, there is one spirit, there is one hope, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all and you do not divide that unity. You are a part of this church. So profess your faith before this church. God calls you to respond in faith to the promises that He made in Christ. He promised to be your God. That promise came to you in this church. It came to you this morning again. It was signified through baptism in church, it was realized through the preaching of Christ in church. Maybe some of you, younger youth, will be looking at these people up front and feel a bit of envy. And you'll think to yourself, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I'm ready. Or maybe you've already professed your faith and you're struggling with doubt this morning. You're thinking, was it real? Let this be an encouragement to you to respond every day in faith to the promises God made to you in Christ. He made them to you, He guaranteed them in Christ. He calls you to respond. Let us all respond. Yes, Lord, I do. Amen.